Help him to be clear. Help him to be true to your words. And God, speak through your servant as we listen for your message to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks very much. Thank you, Ali. Thanks a lot. I just, I've just noticed I forgot to, to mention that in the inside cover of the What's On, there's a new feature, Who's Who, in Hamilton Baptist Church. I don't know if you might see that. I have to say, the first thought that went through my mind when I saw that, Crime Watch. <laughs> if you find them, let me know. No, it's good to get an introduction. <laughs> it's good to know. <laughs> Just follow the beard and we know you're around somewhere. Okay. Um, let's just move into to God's Word. And, and this week we're, we're going to work our way, continue to work our way through some of the, the key passages in Acts. And, and just for a, a bit of a recap, last week in, in Acts 16, 6 to 11, we saw how the, the seeming confusion of Paul and his companions at the human level as they were ready to be led by the Spirit as part of the Spirit strategy, actually got them into the continent of Europe. Now, this was an an event of incredible significance because it was from there, as the gospel truly took root, that the gospel spread out worldwide. With this being something that, that Paul, being a man of his time and his culture, a man who thought in terms of Roman provinces, rather than of continents, would never fully, I don't think, be able to grasp. But today we move on to look at a significant event in this here, in Paul's first incursion into Europe. Now, we're we're trying to be selective, we've said at the beginning, and not get bogged down in in an exhaustive verse-by-verse exposition study of Acts. So I do hope that Paul's first convert in Philippi will excuse me, that is Lydia, the obviously refined and wealthy lady, the seller of the exclusive purple cloth that was so expensive to dye that it was worn only by the very wealthy with her herself, obviously being wealthy enough to own a house that could accommodate a number of guests plus her own servants. I hope she'll excuse me as I, I move on to instead concentrate on his second convert, the much more down-to-earth rough-hewn Philippian jailer. And the reason I'm making this choice is because his story, then itself, is just so powerful and vibrant, because it also raises some big issues. At least they're big issues for Christians today. I don't think they were at the time. These were things that they just took in their stride. But, but these things become big issues and become controversial issues in the church of today as they're mishandled and misapplied. And what we're going to try and do is is set these things in their context and handle them biblically. And don't worry, you'll know what these big issues are, I've no doubt, when we come to them. But let's look at this Philippian jailer, beginning by looking at just what kind of man he was. So let's just do some biblical detective work, if you like. Now, we know that the place where this incident occurred, Philippi, 
was a Roman colony. And as such, as a Roman colony, it very much ran along Roman lines with Romans unquestionably in most, if not all, of the key important strategic position. And in fact, it was the custom then, and it's much more than likely, that this man, this jailer, was a retired Roman soldier. Now, what does that tell us? Well, let me share with you what I think is a marvelous piece of understatement from F.F. Bruce. He says he was probably a retired Roman soldier. And while the training of a Roman soldier developed many fine qualities of character, these did not include much of the milk of human kindness. Now, when I was in Wigtown and a wee bit in Peterhead, because that's the only place I know where they actually campaigned to keep a prison in the town, but I had to be careful because, as I said, Peterhead, they were very protective of the prison. When I was in Wigtown, uh, one third of the congregation were either prison officers, their dependents, or inmates at the local open prison. But that's not so here. So let's just say that this man was, in all probability, a hard man. He was a man who, as part of the all-conquering Roman army, had probably seen much of the then known world. He was a man then who knew what went on in the world. And he was a man who, on the field of battle, had seen much of what is best and that which is worst in human nature. A man who I think we could say with justification was in all probability worldly wise, probably inclined, if anything, towards cynicism and distrust. Someone who I believe we can see from the evidence of his later actions, someone who'd made up his mind to go through life relying on the three mainstays of any worthwhile Roman soldier. Duty, discipline, and honor. And who above all was determined not to be moved or influenced by any of the foolishness that he saw going on in the world around him. This man was going to be a good soldier to the end of his days. Eyes straight ahead, looking neither to the left or the right. He was going to march through life doing his duty. And I wonder how many of us here are maybe just a little bit, to some extent, like this Philippian jailer. And I wonder how many of us have become worldly wise. Got just that little bit bitter and cynical. And it is so easy with all that we see and experience in the world around us. So how many of us are there then who are quizzical and and question about anything that we're told that's supposed to be good in life? Yes, and how many of us have then, like this jailer, resolved to build our lives on what we think is right. And you could maybe insert family and career and possessions instead of duty, discipline, and honor. And how many of us are there who, like this Roman soldier, this retired soldier, how many are marching grimly in a way through life, refusing to look to the left or the right, Refusing for fear of some kind to think about anything in depth that might knock us off of this course we've set. How many of us are there, I wonder? But then, 
there was something that stopped him in his tracks. And that's what we're going to look at now. That is what he saw. And just what did he see? Well, initially he saw a poor, tormented, demon-possessed girl set free from the evil spirit that enslaved her. Now here we come face to face with big issue number one, and that is the issue of the demonic. And before we move on just to discuss this in a little bit more detail, there's one thing right at the outset that I want to make absolutely clear. And that is, while demon possession is a possibility for a non-Christian, yet it is not, in my opinion, a possibility for a Christian, at least certainly not subsequent to conversion. Now, because you see, possession speaks of absolute power and authority. And that is a power that I believe that it's impossible for Satan to achieve in an individual's life once Jesus Christ has become Lord of their life. Because, you see, to talk of a Christian being possessed, well, that implies that in some way that God has been subordinated, that God has been overpowered in that person's life. That kind of terminology, I believe, undermines God's sovereign almighty power in a way that's unbiblical, misleading, and ultimately dangerous. But you know here, don't misunderstand me. The devil does have an influence in every Christian's life. He does. Because this world, this life, our hearts and minds are a spiritual battlefield. There's a battle going on all the time. And if we give ourselves over to his influence by backsliding again into a life of sin, then his influence over the life of a Christian can be considerable. And depending on the nature and the extent of any sin, can go right up, I believe, to the borders of possession. But a Christian, demon-possessed, I'm sorry, I reject that. Well, I'm actually not sorry. But I reject that totally. But having made that clear, let me just go on to say that it seems to me that, that in the church of today, that, that our approach to, to demonology, to this kind of area, usually goes along one of two opposite but equally extreme lines. And so we've got those on the one hand who see everything in life in terms of demon possession. I've heard people talk of the demon of anger, the demon of jealousy, the demon of gossip. These people seem to have forgotten almost entirely the biblical concept of sin. But you see, it's handy, isn't it? Because you see, when we talk of the demon rather than the sin of anger, well, that certainly diminishes, does it not, the extent of, of our personal responsibility. That's what's going on here. You know, don't blame me for my sin. It's not my fault. No, blame my demon. At the other extreme, though, we've got those who won't countenance the possibility of the demonic in this modern day and age. So everything then that we encounter in this world that disturbs us, well, it's all to be put down just to sin and it's outworking in terms of things like, you know, mental illness, emotional problems, etc., etc. Now, if the first extreme is the sensationalist, looking for a thrill, 
then surely this extreme is the rationalist looking for somewhere to hide. The common sense kind of person who's afraid of that which they've maybe never encountered before. And I've got to confess that, that would be my personal tendency, but you know, I've come to see that the answer to the unknown that disturbs me isn't to overreact and write it off, but rather it's to sanctify my fear and cautiously seek the truth. And the truth, as I see it, is that I've got no biblical warrant for denying the possibility of the demonic. Yet at the same time, we have to exercise great restraint in attaching the label of demonic influence, never mind full-scale possession, to anything we encounter. We've got to do that because, you see, the facts are that the devil, he can achieve his main aim in our life, which is either to keep us from faith in Christ or make us useless as Christians in Christ's service. He can do that without anything like this kind of scale of interference. And those who've got expertise in this area, and I'm inclined to agree with them, they say that before this happens in somebody's life, they themselves must have actually actively opened their lives up to evil influences. Say through Satanism or, or witchcraft or even through dabbling in Ouija boards or seances or whatever. Let me just round things off here by sharing with you two observations, two pieces of teaching that over the years have been a great help to me. The first is from Neil Coslett's book, His Healing Hands, which incidentally is one of the best, most balanced modern books on the whole kind of issue of, of healing. And this is what he says. He says, it is unhealthy to go about looking for demons everywhere or to develop too much interest in their activity. Some have a tendency to attribute all kinds of mental and physical illnesses to demonic activity and to seek confrontation. This was not Christ's way. He responded to those who came to him. Now, if you actually look at the, the biblical record of the ministry of Jesus, you'll soon find that this is very much the case. And indeed, in this incident here, perhaps even more so, Paul took his time, didn't he, before actually concluding he was being confronted by the truly demonic. Verse 18 says that she kept this up, this woman, for many days. And then finally, it says, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. So we don't go looking then for things of this nature. We don't. We simply deal as best we can with whatever comes our way. And that is something which I believe the average Christian in our country today should encounter very rarely, if ever. And which will often involve bringing in someone else with particular gifting and expertise that we don't have. The other observation that's been of great help to me is that of, of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And that is, he says, that spiritual problems respond to spiritual treatment. 
Of course, we see this again and again in the the ministry of Jesus. For example, in Luke 4.34, a demon-possessed man comes to Jesus. Jesus treats his spiritual problems spiritually, and the man is healed. If a person isn't healed, though, then we've got to at least question whether their problem really is spiritual. Now, I want to say that all of this has, has led me to an approach in ministry But I believe, you know, I think it's right to start at the basic level and work my way up. So say someone's disturbed and restless, unhappy, whatever you want to say. I would say, let's first explore if there's a physical reason for this. You know, it could be something to do with some illness or chemical imbalance. It could be something that that medicine could perhaps deal with or at least give the kind of breathing space that would allow us to explore perhaps possible other and deeper problems. So then after that, then let's explore the possibility of emotional problems. And and please, let's realize, I've said it before, that Christians do have emotional problems. We are given a new spiritual beginning in Christ. We're born again. And we are given new spiritual resources, but we don't always become instantly emotionally whole. In the same way that we don't become instantly perfect in holiness. We don't. No, Christians sometimes need to be helped to apply the work of Christ to the issues that are in their life. They have to be helped to release the spiritual resources Christ gives to different areas of their life. And certainly, there are times when emotional problems have got spiritual roots or spiritual side effects. Say, when being unloved in childhood leads to a feeling of unworthiness, then that makes it really hard to take on board the love of God, and that can incapacitate someone in God's service. You see, It takes spiritual resources. It takes the Word of God brought to our hearts by the power of the Spirit, brought to life in us. It takes that Word of God to deal with things like this, to bring home to us actually how precious we are to God and how God longs to bless us. That's His desire, and He wants to use us in His service. But I have to confess that I've never been involved with someone who's been demon-possessed. I've been brought along to houses to, to pray in situations, but I've never felt I could come to the conclusion that someone's demon-possessed. And I, what I've said to you, I believe to be the right approach. I would have to work my way through every other possibility before coming to that conclusion. Not then the first thing that's to be jumped at because it's sensational, but rather... It's the last terrible, fearful conclusion. But you see, that's what this Roman jailer here saw. This kind of terrible spiritual conflict. And this must have made him sit up and take notice because undoubtedly he had seen the power of evil at work in his life. And he'd seen, I know, all kind of false miracle workers also because these things existed in abundance in the ancient world. But as he looked, he saw that these men, 
had real power, the like of which he'd never seen before. Now, they were Jews, for the the girl identified them as Jews, calling them servants of the Most High God. That's a, a special Greek phrase that was used to mark out Jews. And yet, these men were Jews with a, with a difference. Because for days, they'd been going round, we're told in verse 17, telling the way to be saved. And that's not in any way a normal Jewish practice. Jews then were renowned, they were notorious, might be a better word, for keeping the secrets of their faith to themselves. So what was the way to be saved? What was it that gave these men such power? What was it that made them so different? You know, you can almost imagine this cynical, battle-hardened veteran This man used to looking at the world with indifference. You can almost imagine him kind of drawing to the edge of his seat, interest, beginning to light up his eyes. But then with that cynical smile reappearing as events then seemed to unfold and take their usual course. Because not everyone is delighted at what's happened here. No, this girl's owners are outraged. For you see, when they look at her, they don't see a person, a human being, made well and set free. No, they see a money-making machine made useless. For without this evil spirit, her fortune-telling ability was gone. And so the inflated price that they undoubtedly paid for her and the profit that they certainly hoped to make from her was lost. So what's left for them? Nothing save to vent their anger and frustration against these men who by their twisted logic have done this terrible thing. And so, with in all likelihood the help of a few bully boys, Paul and Silas are dragged off to the magistrates to have charges brought against them. It's interesting that it's only Paul and Silas who are brought before the magistrates because Timothy and Luke were also with them in Philippi. But when you read the charges that are actually brought here against them, well, it soon becomes clear why Paul and Silas have been singled out. And no doubt the smile would begin to broaden on the face of our cynical jailer friend. Because no mention in the charges is made of the girl. No mention of her healing or of any lost prophet. Now, what's said, verse 20, is these men are Jews. And by throwing our, our city into uproar, and are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. You see, what's going on here is that, that Paul and Silas were the only two full-blooded Jews. Luke was a Gentile, Timothy half Jew, half Gentile. So really what we've got here is a case of first century racial religious discrimination. For Jews weren't popular at this time in the Roman Empire. Just a year or so previous to this, the Emperor Claudius, he'd commanded that all Jews should be banished from Rome. And in these early days of the Christian church, well, you see, to the average disinterested Roman, Jews and Christians were just slightly different variants, different developments of exactly the same thing. 
You see, these men were just jumping on the bandwagon of prejudice. But I hope you can see, though, the kind of clash of cultures that, that we actually have here. The proud Romans, whose legions had conquered the world, subjecting people everywhere to their rule. And the equally proud Jews, who claimed that they and they alone were God's prized, special people. And so what these men really are saying here is, listen, Jews are bad enough. But these men here who say that there's only one God, their God, these men who refuse to worship our emperor as we do, as a God, they're now trying to tell us that one of their kind, that Jesus, a carpenter, that he is God in human flesh and that we should worship heaven. They won't worship our emperor but they want us to worship a carpenter. And so carried along by popular feeling and prejudice, not even bothering, it would seem, to check the charges, the magistrate's order, verse 23, that Paul and Silas should be severely flogged. And let me assure you that by any standards, this was a severe beating. This being finished off by them being handed into the gentle, loving care of our jailer, who, as we would expect, fulfills his duty to the letter and beyond. He's taking no chances with these men who already exhibited such power. So he's got to keep Paul and Silas safe and secure, so they're thrown into the inner part of the prison, the coldest and darkest, the most uncomfortable, but the most secure part of the prison. And then as an added precaution which would certainly add to their discomfort and their bruised and battered condition they were they were fastened by the feet into wooden stocks now what would be in the thoughts of this jailer's mind as he did this what would be in his mind well obviously he didn't allow any initial impression or any emotion arising from that to interfere with his duty I don't think it's reading too much into this here. To assume that, that his thoughts and feelings were probably much the same as, as many who have a superficial understanding of Christianity. That is, it, it sounds good. It sounds appealing. But it doesn't really work. For these men, they say that they're following the God who saves. Well, why then are they in this situation? Isn't that the way that the world around so often superficially thinks? They think that if as Christians we know God as we claim to know Him, then surely our lives should be carefree. And because they're so obviously not, also then they conclude, well, that God doesn't exist. That our faith doesn't actually work. If only they'd look at the evidence as it's found here and as it's found throughout the Bible, they would soon see that one thing as believers we are not promised on this earth is a carefree existence. I mean, you think about it, how could we be? We're God's ambassadors to a fallen world that's in rebellion against Him. No, God doesn't promise to help His people avoid trouble. What He promises is to give us the strength and spiritual resources as we turn to him that enables us to overcome 
in the midst of trouble and suffering. But so often, people don't investigate here. Why? Well, I think because their ignorance allows them to drift on living unchanged lives. Aware maybe that there's something missing in their life. Aware that there's an impoverishment, that there's a need in their life. But unwilling to face up to it and deal with it. And so might our friend here, the jailer, have drifted on. Except for what we're now going to look at. And that is what he experienced. And what was it he experienced that woke him up out of his worldly cynicism and spiritual indifference? What was it? It was quite simply, and yet in varied ways, it was an experience of the power of God. The power of God. And that all began when, as verse 25 tells, tells us, that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And all the other prisoners were listening to them. And you know, I think it must be at least possible that it wasn't only the other prisoners that were listening to them. I think perhaps that also that this jailer would hear the sound of their praise breaking out. You know, I wonder how many men that he'd put into that prison before. I'm sure there were many. Kicking and screaming and begging for mercy. And yet these two are singing the praises of the God whose service got them into the position that they're in. Can we doubt then that this man would begin to, to know something here of the power of praise? That he would begin to realize that there was only one, one choice, that these men were either mad or that their relationship with their God was of a quality and a depth that she had never, ever encountered before. Yes, he must surely have at least begun to realize that their trust in God rested on something deeper and more meaningful than their physical life circumstances. That it rested on something that could not be touched by human hands. It must have been a restless night for this jailer. For no sooner has he fallen asleep than suddenly there's this, this mighty earthquake. And so the power of God that he'd begun to realize through praise is now demonstrated to him unmistakably, visibly, physically. And surely we can imagine him now staggering out of his bed, rubbing at his eyes, rushing over to his prison, and there before his eyes... His worst fears are realized. The doors have been thrown wide open. These men have been set free by the power of their God. Well, as we've said, he was a man of honor, this man. He was a man for whom duty meant everything. In verse 23, he'd been commanded specifically to guard these men carefully. He has failed in his duty. He's shamed before the whole city. For him, there's only one way out. And so he draws his sword and prepares to drive it either into his throat or his heart. But you see, Paul and Silas and all the other prisoners, they're still in the darkness and the gloom of that inner prison. 
And looking out towards the light, they can see the silhouette of this jailer with his sword poised. And so Paul shouts, don't harm yourself, for we are all here. Over the centuries, you can almost hear that sword drop. You see, these men haven't run away as he feared. And so the power of God also stands here before him in the form of transformed holy lives because these men who know their God no matter what the circumstances will do nothing to dishonor him and so like many others before and many others after him this jailer is drawn towards God by a many faceted experience of his power his power at work first and foremost through his word that word of salvation that Paul and Silas have been spreading throughout Philippi. Then sensing his power and the praise of his people and the devotion of their lives, praise that points to a depth, a quality of relationship with God that was unknown to him, that seems to strengthen and deepen the worse the circumstances become. And then here, being confronted directly by God's power. Perhaps here in a miracle, with miracles, as we've said, always finding their validity in their relationship to the Word of God. Miracles don't happen willy-nilly. They don't just happen in isolation. Their purpose is to validate and point to the truth of God's Word. And certainly, many just like this jailer have been drawn to God by being confronted directly by His power in the sense of his transforming power, working through the lives of his people, bringing his people to holiness, showing a different quality of life. But what's the result of this experience here of God's power? What's the result? It's the receiving of Jesus as Lord. Verse 30, the jailer falls to his knees before Paul and Silas and asks, Men, what must I do to be saved? The answer he receives is simple and clear. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now here comes another issue we'll deal with very quickly that this verse is often used by those who go in for infant baptism as a justification for that. The fact that that this man's household also are baptized, which almost certainly included young children. Now, my reply, my answer to that, as someone who practices baptism as a Baptist, is that, you know, age isn't an issue for me. Faith is what counts. The Baptist churches are about believers' baptism, not about adult baptism. And this passage here makes it very clear that this jailer's faith didn't cover his children, but they actually had faith all of their own. Verse 34 says, the whole whole family was filled with joy because they had come to believe in God. And as Howard Marshall, a Methodist, says, he says salvation is offered to them on exactly the same terms. They have to hear the word, believe, and be baptized. 
the jailer's faith does not cover them. What's more important for us, though, is that in those few words, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That in these few words here, Paul lets this man and lets his family know that to really come to know this God of power, to have a depth relationship with him, that this requires a depth response to him. So you see, saying the right words, a verbal, intellectual is sent. It's not enough. Just having an emotional feeling, feeling warm and fuzzy towards Jesus. It's not enough. Both of their place, but it's not enough. Crowning all of this, there has to be a recognition that Jesus Christ is Lord if we are to be Christians. There has to be a bowing of the knee to Him. There has to be a surrender of all of our lives to His authority, His Lordship, to obeying Him and following Him. That's the kind of response being confronted by God's power led that jailer and his family to make. I want to say today, may we too come to see as God works in our hearts today by His power, that that's the only kind of adequate response to Jesus that we also can make. Feeling nice about Jesus isn't enough. We need to bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord if we're to know Him and follow Him as He wants His people to. Let's come and pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for the greatness of your love. want to thank you that as you reached out in power into that jailer's life, that you're reaching out today to people here. You want us to know that if we don't yet know Jesus, the only way to know him is by coming to him as Lord. We need to believe in who he is, what he's done for us, and then we have to determine to give our life wholly to Him, to live in every area of life in obedience to Him. And Father, if we're to follow Jesus as Christians, as we should, if we're to know the real blessing of Christian living, that will only happen when we're really living with Jesus Christ as Lord. Living parts of our life the way that we want, unsurrendered to Jesus, that doesn't do it. Every part of our life has to be offered up to him if we are to know that blessing of God's children. Lord, help us to see Jesus as Lord today and help us to respond to him as he wants us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.